is summarized in this final verse of the book of Judges, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a brutal, brutal civilization for men and women alike. And Samuel, if you'll remember, was the leader to whom the Israelites called out to and said, We want a king. They wanted someone, a king, who would exercise dominion over them. They want to be like their neighboring nations. We can relate whenever there's social upheaval and violence in a culture. History shows that people are willing to give up their personal liberties in order to have someone come in and dominate over them to preserve peace. Well, the, the request greatly displeased Samuel, but he did install a king over them. If you remember, he anointed King Saul first, and then not a whole lot later, he anointed King David as well. And the reason I bring this up is that the final verses of Ruth, there's a brief genealogy, an abbreviated genealogy listed, and it's that of King David. And since the genealogy doesn't mention uh, David's son Solomon, it's probable that Ruth was written by the prophet Samuel somewhere right around 1000 B.C., book is 3,000 years old, yet it speaks to our culture, to our people, to our society, to us today, as if it were written yesterday. This is the essence of the living Word of God. It's timeless. So what purpose does this book serve? Why was it written? Well, there's a number of theological themes in Ruth, uh, But without question, a primary purpose is this is a narrative story of redemption. The form of the Hebrew word redeem is mentioned 20 times in this very short book. God redeems two very key characters. One is named Naomi, who is the Jew. The other is her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is the Moabite Gentile. And after they've experienced life's trials and hardships, God brings both of these women together into the promised land and into one safe and unified home. The way that God ultimately does this is by providing a redeemer or a relative, a kinsman in many translations. And this kinsman is of kingly ancestry. Uh, This relative or kinsman redeemer is a Hebrew named Boaz, who is the great-grandfather of King David. The relationship of Boaz to David is very important. Regarding this genealogy that you will find at the close of the book of Ruth, uh, some think that the purpose of that genealogy is to prove that David has a lineage to the tribe of Judah. It would document his royal ancestry. I don't think that's the primary reason. The Jews had plenty of documentation through kings and chronicles and other books, uh, Samuel, to prove who David was. Instead, I kind of go off on my own here. This hasn't been, isn't printed in a lot of theological books, a lot of theological resources, but so take it for what it's worth. I personally suspect that that short genealogy in the back that goes from Perez to David is to prove that Boaz is the one who fits into this kingly lineage, this royal line. It's primarily to prove to the reader that Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, 
is the great-grandfather of David, and as such, in a royal descendancy. He's, the, he's the, one of the main characters in Ruth. He's a kinsman redeemer, as I said. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's the redeemer who takes under his wings and cares for both the Jew and the Gentile, Naomi and Ruth, and brings the two together while entering into the covenant of marriage with Ruth. He brings them into one household to worship. Boaz is an ancestor of and a type of Jesus Christ, through whom Israel should have been able to learn these principles by reading this about the redemption and the inclusion of the Gentiles. The book of Ruth is foremost a picture. It's a snapshot of grace documenting redemption as it's illustrated through the lives of Ruth and Naomi. As we learned in Colossians last summer, many Old Testament illustrations are shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Ruth is a historical, it's a factual account. The book is genuine. Uh, Critics of the Bible who'd attempt to want to discredit and distort the Bible would propose that Ruth is a fictional story written at a much later date. That is not possible. As you proceed later in time into the prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God's judgments against the tribe of Moab only get stronger and firmer, uh, documented much more even than what we read in Deuteronomy. Uh, The proud Hebrews would never have accepted into their books, into the scriptures, a book like this that would document David being a descendant of a Moabite unless it were true. They would never let that slip in uh, because of the curses on the Moabites. Um, They want to let something in where the family tree says that David was a Moabite if it weren't factual. Uh, Those who knew King David in that day, as he became king, knew that he was a great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. It would have never been fabricated. By the way, that extended genealogy that, uh, of Christ that is recorded in the first chapter of Matthew, if you remember, the very long genealogy from Abraham all the way down to Jesus Christ, includes within it this identical lineage. With a thousand years separating these books, the level, the level of accuracy and preservation is astounding. You find that in all 66 books of the Bible, that they are all in harmony with one another. God divinely preserves his word. The Bible is the very word of God. Another thing that we learn in Ruth is that God's providence, God has providence over man's activities. We'll find that uh, Ruth makes no assumption that God is an absentee landlord. It's the Lord who removes the famine from the land in chapter 1 so that they can return home. It is the Lord who allows Ruth to conceive. The mighty hand of God is unmistakable throughout this entire book. And also, God's grace is prominent as he orchestrates human events. You can almost sense a a slight sarcasm when Ruth uh, says in the book itself, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech, who was her father-in-law. Really. Really. She just happened there. 
And Boaz just happened to show favor to Ruth in providing abundance in water and resources and safety. And he just happened to care for them. And he happened to, though he was not required by the law to redeem her, Boaz is not a close kinsman redeemer. He wasn't a brother to Elimelech. He didn't have to redeem. He did it because he wanted to out of the abundance of his heart. He was a man who offered abundant blessing and loving kindness to these women. Christ is also a Hebrew. He's not a Gentile. He is not one of our kinsmen. He was the Son of God. He was under no obligation to come to the Gentiles, to live with us as a man, to die for us for our sins, to suffer on a cross, to rise again. He gives, too, far more abundantly than anything that we deserve, though he was under no obligation. He offered us his riches, as Boaz did to Ruth. Christ offers his riches to his bride, which is his church. It's going to be a good book. So let's just take a couple of verses and wade into Ruth a little bit and get our feet wet. Look in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says that, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Though this verse doesn't get specific, under the Old Covenant, famine was a a symptomatic of God's judgment on Israel for sins. And we we do know that this famine is the handiwork of God. We'll find out later in verse 6 that it is God who restores food to Israel. It's clearly credited to him. And famine is bad news especially in an ancient agricultural society. We don't understand this quite as much in an age of McDonald's and and Big Gulps. But back then, this would have been a serious situation. Everything depended on the growing of crops and vegetables and fruits and harvesting oils. And if there's drought, disease, or pestilence, the stockpiles go down, and what happens? The prices go up. Life becomes complicated by another problem at that point is unemployment. If there are no crops in the field to harvest, then there's no work for the workers to go and earn. It's a dire situation. Has anyone here, don't raise your hands, had to move their family to an entire new location to provide for them because work had dried up? That's a conundrum a certain man is facing here named Elimelech. But for God's covenant people, it gets a bit more complicated than just packing up a U-Haul and moving to another state where the job prospects are better. Israel is supposed to dwell in the land. That is what was given to them was the land. Listen to Joshua chapter 24. God says to Israel, You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. But not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river 
and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The land of Israel isn't pictured as only a gift. It is celebrated as a generous inheritance to the people of Israel. Each of the twelve tribes was provided a portion of land as an inheritance. And the prosperity in their land was dependent upon what? Obedience. If they obeyed God, there'd be prosperity, abundance, and fertility. These are just some of the blessings that the covenant people enjoyed. But they are conditional upon obedience. Imagine if you had a, a wealthy father, an earthly father. He offered you a big piece of property with everything you needed, homes, recreation, abundant work, blessing. And all he asks of you is to honor him and his name. Honor the family name. But then you smash your SUV into town square. You leave your wife, run off with someone new, and do all kinds of reckless actions that bring dishonor to the name. Would that father possibly cut off your Capital One visa? He would. He'd say, enough. Enough. Well, in training Israel and in keeping them honest, God gave conditions of remaining in the land. And he, he clearly revealed these to Israel. This was not hidden. This was documented. All of them knew that these conditions existed. His covenant indicates that if disease or pestilence or famine or war or destruction of any kind come to the land, it was supposed to indicate them something. They were in sin. They were supposed to repent. That's how God works with his covenant people of Israel. It's not, by the way, the way that God works with his church at this day. Americans not the promised land. That's a different sermon for another day, but this is not America. It's Israel. But the Jews of the covenant knew that the nation would suffer during these times of disobedience, and when they would repent, there'd be restoration. We see this cycle time and time again through the Old Testament, even to points where they later on would be expelled from the land because of their disobedience. So, but if there's famine in the land, people are supposed to realize something's wrong. And they should have been able to look around and see that there's disobedience and sin. And the, the, the proper response is to repent and stay in the land. It wasn't to get your family relocated to a new place outside the land. Well, watch what happens as, as verse 1 continues. It says, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab and his wife and his two sons. I have a map that shows the relationship of these, these areas. One moment. And it shows where Israel is next to the Mediterranean. And if you can see that, you've got the Mediterranean Sea on your left. Judah right here at the bottom to the left of the Dead Sea. And Moab is southeast of that on the other side. Could we have a close-up? Next slide. This is the relationship of Judah and Moab. You can see Bethlehem here. And that is a possible course that this family took to go around the Dead Sea into Moab, outside of the land. Probably about 50 miles. Probably about 50 miles. This man and his family went, what does it say to do? To sojourn. 
That means to dwell for a season, to check it out, to spend a few months there, to temporarily inhabit. They were going to sojourn. That was their purpose. And knowing what we know about Moab and about the covenant promise tied to repentance and remaining in the land, can you see anything wrong with the direction they're going? Can you sense that there might be something that isn't right in this picture? God's blessings remain to staying in the land. They were tied to staying in the land. Secondly, famine should have prompted, prompted them to think something's wrong. What is going on here not caused them to flee the land, desert the inheritance that they had been promised. And what about Moab? What do we know about the land of Moab? We know that no Moabite is to enter the house of the Lord. They're a cursed people, even to the tenth generation, it says. In fact, so cursed, at this time of Ruth, they would have only had the scriptures from Deuteronomy. They would have seen that. They, they had not yet had Ezekiel and Isaiah and these other prophets who pronounced judgment against them. But this curse is extensive. To the tenth generation, a lot of theologians think that that's a permanent curse. It's just a way of describing how extensive this curse is and that's very possible because you hear the curse uh, again stated in Ezekiel many centuries later so uh, that's not a good place to be there's, there's a, probably a dozen reasons that you and I could sit here and think about this and say that might not be a very good plan to go down to Moab that's a bad idea to sojourn in that land but what might Moab have to, have to offer what is implied in the text? Perhaps there is more grain. In fact, factually, that land does get typically more rain than Israel does. It has very fertile soil. The grass might be greener on the other side of the fence. And the man says, Lord, you know, I know that's not the place that you want me to be. But there's a chance at some economic prosperity over there. Could be way better for me over in the land of Moab. That's like us saying, Lord, I know that some of these business activities that I'm in aren't really Christian. But you know, by the way, it's, it's kind of hard to make a buck. But, you know, and I'm just going to spend a little bit of time in this just to get my business on its feet. And then I'll straighten up my act afterwards. Then I'll come back to Christian principles. It's amazing what behavior can be rationalized by someone when money is involved, isn't it? God says no, but we decide to go. And this man takes his family into Moab. And look at verse 2. This is really interesting as we get into this verse. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Here's a few important points. In Hebrew, Elimelech means, my God is king. But we can't know for certain that that's the heart that Elimelech has, because who gave him that name? His parents. So it probably says more about his parents than it actually does about Elimelech. In fact, to find out what Elimelech's spirituality is like, it might be more accurate to look at his children's names. And when you look at Malon... That name means sickly. Killian, the other son, means pining or weakening. 
So in effect, Elimelech named his newborn boys sickly and feeble. I don't think he was much of an optimist. And it says they were from this Ephrath section of Bethlehem, which is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, notice this is historical documentation. That's like given their zip code. And Elimelech took his wife Naomi, that means pleasant, by the way, along with sickly and feeble and headed out in the land of Moab. They stepped outside the promised land to search for a blessing among a culture who was forbidden from entering the house of the Lord. They're initially going to sojourn. They're going to go there for a time. Get some temp work at a contract job, maybe. What actually ended up happening, according to the end of verse 2? It says in the end of text 2, they remained. They went in with one intention, changed to another once they were there. Now, how often does that happen? You expected to step outside of God's revealed will and to sojourn into an area that maybe isn't appropriate just for a few months. And you're going to snatch up a quick blessing. Maybe you move out to the West Coast and work in an adult club of some kind to make a few quick bucks. It's only going to be for a few months. Or perhaps move into an apartment with a boyfriend or girlfriend and just going to be a few months until they get up the courage to... Say, I do. And what happens all the time? You remain. You remain. And eventually it becomes a lifestyle and a very bad situation that is difficult to crawl out of. Out of. So now if you think that I'm criticizing Elimelech a little too harshly, I can understand that because after all, he was just trying to make a few bucks in order to get a happy meal for sickly and feeble, trying to feed them. But does anyone remember one other thing down in Moab that is waiting for Elimelech's children? Can anyone sense one other thing? You will, you will recall it, I believe. Do you have any idea what the religious landscape was, look, uh, looked like over there? What was Elimelech taking his family into spiritually? Were they just good old Christian folk down in Moab? No. No, they were not. Their God was not Yahweh, I am who I am. The Moabites' God was named Chemosh. The Ammonites called the same deity Molech. Does that ring a bell? Chemosh was a demonic-inspired war god who demanded child sacrifice. He demanded child sacrifice, and in the most horrific fashion, I'll add, and leave it there. Do you really want to take your family into that environment? Do you really want to sojourn in Moab and get caught up there, possibly for many, many years? Do you want your kids to observe and learn those things, those habits? Is that a future? What do you suspect happens to our friend Elimelech? How does this go? You'll have to come back next week to find out. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Lord, so wonderful to be able to look at your word and see people and see how they act and the decisions they make. Lord, 
see how they affect them and realize how it affects us. And Lord, our decisions so often are not pleasing to you. As we study this book and, and look at how you work with your people and how judgment comes, Lord, and how you redeem, how you bless, Lord, uh, pray you edify all of us, that you encourage us to uh, seek you, to seek uh, to come under your wings, the wings of the Lord, for safety, for provision, Lord, for your love. Lord, guide our time as, as we go from here to next Sunday in between, that you give us many opportunities to witness, to talk to others about Jesus Christ, how he redeems, how he blesses. Lord, uh, keep us safe. We pray that you'll comfort those who are hurting, that you'll guide those who are wandering, Lord, and that you bring us all together again to worship you again next week. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.